email, email me. I'm going to discuss something that's not directly about Pesach. It's mainly not about Pesach, but it's a little bit about Pesach as well. And it may be no gayer for you. And that is the halachas of owning pets, the different complications. Pets? Pets, animals. Uh, right? Many of you might have dogs or cats. Or this or I want to be ignorant. Say again? This is a topic I want to be ignorant on. Oh, okay. Uh, or guinea pigs are actually very good, uh, very good pets and, and the like. Uh, now, Chabad has a sheet. Chabad has a sheet about non-kosher animals generally. <laughs> but they don't even like uh, uh, babies to have uh, teddy bears or, or whatever. So obviously, if you have such a Messira, uh, that's a separate matter. Uh, but in terms of the etzim halacha, I mean, unfortunately, most pets, unless you have a, a pet calf or something like that, most pets are going to be non-kosher. Yeah, I mean, a goat or a goat. Goats, goats are actually nice, nice pets. Uh, but most pets that uh, people have, uh, unless goldfish, uh, might be kosher. Uh, but most pets are not kosher, so I'm, I'm assuming that uh, that is not an issue per se. But what are the halachic issues about pets? So I have five different areas I want to discuss. Uh, some of them will be brief, some will be longer. Issue number one is, what does the halacha say about owning pets generally? Issue number two is, halachas about feeding pets. Issue number three, which is a biggie, is the halachas of sterilizing animals, which is a major, major uh, issue. Uh, issue number four is Hilcho Shabbos and pets. And issue number five, uh, which is a, not, not a common issue, is whether you could bring a pet, uh, particularly if it's what's called a service animal, like a seeing eye dog, into a shul. Uh, there are laws regarding the holiness of a shul that would not allow you to bring a pet or an animal uh, into the shul, right? So we have five different halachic areas. So issue number one is, is there any problem with owning a pet? Can a religious Jew own a dog or a cat? So here, there is one Gemara in Baba Kama that says the following, but you'll see how the text is very crucial. There is a Gemara that says in Baba Kama that you're not allowed to own a dog. But, but, but the girsa, the text in most commentaries is, you're not allowed to own a kelev ra. The word ra is added. And ra is described as either a dog that bites, because it could hurt people, or some learn even a dog that barks, because it can scare people. In other words, the concern of the Gemara is for one of two things. It's a machlokas in the commentaries. Which one? We're either concerned with actually hurting people or we are concerned with even scaring people. And the Gemara makes the point that if a woman is frightened, this could actually induce a miscarriage. Now, even then, the Gemara says, if you have need for security, for example, you live in a high-crime neighborhood or you have a business that needs to be guarded, you are allowed to have watchdogs. But generally speaking, halacha would discourage Aggressive. Now, not, not, by the way, not all watchdogs are aggressive. In fact, it's the other way around. A good watchdog is actually not aggressive. A good watchdog is smart enough to figure out the difference between a threat and a friendly person. So you can actually have, in fact, they have sometimes one of the, some of the, some of the biggest so-called fiercest dogs can actually be very, very gentle. And they're smart enough that they're not going to attack uh, you know, somebody who's just walking in the street. But the halacha does say you're not supposed to have aggressive dogs, mean dogs, attacking dogs. 
And according to some, you shouldn't even have barking dogs. But even with barking dogs, we have to differentiate between scary barking and just noisy barking. You know, for example, uh, beagles you know, bark a lot. But you know, the bark of a beagle is not a frightening, aggressive bark. Chihuahuas bark a lot. Now, chihuahuas might be aggressive. Chihuahuas are actually because they're nervous animals, so they bite. But a chihuahua bite is also not a big deal uh, that much. Uh, so it's not so much the noise that's the problem. It's the idea of the fear of aggression. And you know, if you know dogs, you know you can tell the difference between an aggressive, you know, even if you're not uh, Caesar Milan, uh, the difference between an aggressive bark and just, you know, bark. Sometimes barks welcome you. Yeah, you come to the house, mm -hmm. a dog wants to welcome you. So the basic idea is, therefore, that uh, halacha does not prohibit owning pets, but it does say you have to steer away, which anyway is a wise idea, that unless you have security reasons, you steer away from aggressive, mean dogs, and you even steer away from dogs that bark in a threatening manner because that scares people, that could be mazik people. And indeed, Chazal pronounced a curse over people that own such, uh, such animals because, you know, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very dangerous thing to, uh, uh, to do. Now, they're, they're, by the way, and some people like, uh, this is new, th I don't know if it's new, but it's been around for a few years, where people either get half dog, half wolf breeds mm -hmm. or, or some of them even want to domesticate wolves. Uh, not a good idea, not, not a great idea. I mean, a wolf is a wild animal. A wolf can be an aggressive animal. And uh, the way the nature of wild animals are is that even if you train them, I mean, there are people that have trained lions and tigers. <coughs> and the lion and tiger can turn in them after, uh, after 10 years or whatever it is because that's just the nature of a wild animal. It is not meant to be a, to be a, uh, to be a pet. Okay. Foxes is another thing. Some people, are, you know, foxes too are not, uh, I mean, okay, okay. All right, so the, the, the short answer is that there is no halachic problem with owning a pet that is not aggressive or barking in a threatening manner. But now the issue is what are the halachas about feeding pets? So there are three issues to, to raise. Remember in Kriyashma, when Hashem says if we keep the mitzvahs, Hashem is going to give us good things. So it says... I will give you grass for your animals, and you will eat, and you will drink. So from here, the Gemara has an interesting halacha, that you are halachically obligated, this is the halacha, to feed your animals before you sit down to your own meal. Now that doesn't mean, I mean obviously, that doesn't mean every single day I take a cookie or something, I gotta run out and feed the dog, but it means when I sit down to my regular meals, before I sit down to breakfast, or lunch, or supper, I am obligated to be sure that my animals have the food they need. Now again, if it's not their scheduling, that's not a problem, but you have to take care of them first. And this is a chiyav of, uh, to avoid sar balichayim. And in fact, the Mephorshim even asked the kasha when Eliezer uh, was offered water by Rivka. Do you remember what Rivka said? Rivka said, I will give you to drink and then I will give your camels to drink. Now the halacha is the other way around. You have to feed the animals first, right? So how could Rivka say that she's gonna give Eliezer first and then the animals? So there are a number of answers that are given for that. One answer is that number one, this is before the Torah was given, so none of these laws applied yet. That's like one answer. The second answer is that there's a difference between your eating and others like this. 
I don't eat until I feed my animals. But if I have a guest, I don't tell the guest I'm going to feed your animals first, meaning my responsibility is more to the human than to his animal. So Rivka is not eating before the animals. Rivka is offering Eliezer before the animals, and that would be appropriate. But there's a third answer that's very interesting. The Magen Avram says, we actually make a difference between drinking and eating. This is very, very interesting. That when it comes to drinking, you may drink before you give your animals water because drinking could be serious. Lack of drinking could be dehydration, etc. So you take care of that. But once you have your water, right? I come in from the street and it's very hot. So I can have water before I feed my dog. But I shouldn't sit down to a meal till I give the dog food. So there's a chiluk between eating and drinking. And with respect to drinking, you can give yourself priority over your animal. Okay, so that's a halacha to keep in mind, that you literally have to feed your animals before you sit down uh, to, uh, to eat. Now, a second halacha is very, very interesting. And that is basor b'chalav, meat and milk. Now, here is the thing. Dog food is not kosher. I mean, you wouldn't want to eat it. I mean, sometimes poor people do eat it, but dog food is treif. The meat in dog food is not kosher. Now, is there a, an intrinsic problem in my feeding my pets non-kosher food? Well, is your animal Jewish? Well, the answer is there's no problem because the Torah does not prohibit animals owned by Jews to eat non-kosher. Uh, they could eat chazer, they could eat pig, etc. However, here's the problem. Some types of prohibited foods are forbidden to eat, but you're allowed to get benefit from, like chazer. I'm not allowed to eat chazer, but I could sell pork to a goy. Now, anything I'm allowed to get benefit from, I can give to my animal, because I'm, even though I'm getting benefit by feeding my animal, I'm not eating it, so it's okay. But there are two types of prohibited foods that are not only forbidden to eat, but forbidden to get benefit from. You can't sell them or give them to a guy or whatever. And uh, they are meat and milk that were cooked together and chametz on Pesach. I'll get to the chametz on Pesach uh, shortly. But meat and milk that are cooked together. If you remember, the Torah says you shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Now that verse is repeated three times in the Torah. Three times. And the Gemara explains because each verse is teaching me an additional law. One verse teaches me I'm not allowed to eat meat that's cooked with milk. The second verse says I'm not allowed to get benefit from it, such as feeding it to my animal or selling it uh, to a guy. And the third verse says I'm not allowed to cook it. Do you understand the implications of this? If you are, let's, I'm going to give you a very practical example. Let's imagine you are in a cooking school. Or you're an army chef, not in the, not in the Israeli army, which keeps kosher, but let's say you're an army chef in the uh, U.S. Army. And let's assume you keep kosher. Right? You're not going to eat anything treif. Right? You're, you're going to keep kosher. But do you understand that if you're stirring a soup that has meat and milk in it, you are committing a sin by the very process of cooking it. 
the cooking of it is a sin, not just the eating and not even the benefit. Right, so that would be a, a, a big problem. So now we have the following issue. Let's imagine you have dog food. Now if the dog food is, not, is just all grain, that's not a problem per se. But let's assume it's meat. Now often in dog food, in order to increase the calcium, they put milk uh, in the meat and it's cooked together. So the problem is, basar b'chalav that is cooked together, cooked together, I'm not allowed to even get benefit from. Now if I'm not allowed to get benefit from it, that means I cannot feed it to my animal. So the question becomes, uh, now when, when can you feed dog food to your animal, when, when can't you? Now, again, let me just explain something just to clarify. I mean, as you know, uh, most Ashkenazim, actually most Spartan as well, we wait six hours between meat to milk. Some say five hours, five and a half hours, five hours and one minute. Some do three hours, but there's a waiting period to meat and milk. I hope you understand that all of that is rabbinic. Under Torah law, you're allowed to have milk with your, with your hamburger. The Torah prohibits meat and milk that is cooked together. So a cheeseburger, although it's not clear if that's cooking, might be a Dorisa prohibition because you have melted cheese in a hamburger. But a glass of milk with a hot dog or a hamburger or a steak, even without the six hours, even if I have them together, I have ice cream right after I have a hamburger, that is Minatora permitted. All of the laws of meat and milk that you got to wait X amount of hours and you have to wash out your mouth, these are halachas, God forbid, do not be lenient on them. These are absolutely halachas that you have to follow, but they are rabbinic halachas you have to follow. Under Torah, it is only if the meat was cooked with the milk that there is an iser. But now we go back to dog food. But in the case of dog food, in many cases, uh, if there's dairy mixed with the milk, the, with the meat, the meat was cooked with the milk. And since that is usher bahana, right? What is usher? But I mean, not just usher to eat, but it's usher to get benefit from. So how can I feed it to my animal? So here, there are some technicalities you need to know. And interestingly enough, the iser of basor b'chalav only applies to kosher meat and not treif meat. So let's take chazer. If I take a piece of pork, which of course is absolutely forbidden for me to eat, and I cook the pork in milk, I can feed that to my animal because the law of meat and milk only applies to kosher meat, wow. not to non-kosher meat. Therefore, pork that's cooked in milk is no worse than pork that's not cooked in milk. Right. Now, pork that's not cooked in milk, I could feed to my animal because chazer is not usher ba'ana, it's only usher bi'achila. So pork that's cooked in milk remains the same thing. So to the degree that the dog food is pork or the dog food is horse meat, I don't know if they do that today, but when I was growing up, they used to, they used to use horse meat. Uh, so there is no problem, or if it's gourmet, rabbit meat, I'm not aware of any dog food that's rabbit meat. Uh, in such a situation, you don't have to worry about meat and milk. Now, another situation. 
What about chicken and milk? So this is an this is a, I don't want to get too technical in the laws of meat and milk, but it actually does have an impact in dog food. Dal Raisa, let's talk about meat for forget about the dog for a moment. Uh, chicken and milk. I'm sure you've heard this over the years. Under Torah law, there is no iser of cooking chicken in milk and eating chicken in milk. Because the Torah describes a goat. Do not cook a kid in its mother's milk, which means the oraisa is only prohibited to cook meat with milk. It is not prohibited to cook chicken in milk. So the din of chicken and milk is rabbinic. Rabbinic, even if you're eating it together. Now, the Ramah lays down a very important klal in halacha. The Ramah lays down a klal in the laws of meat and milk that any basar b'chalav that is only rabbinically prohibited is prohibited only to eat and not to get benefit from. So again, if beef is cooked in milk, that is a da'oraisa of basar b'chalav. That is not only asar in eating, it's asar in benefit, and you couldn't give it to an animal. But since chicken in milk is only uh, basar b'chalav rabbinically, it is usher to eat. Yeah, it is usher to eat rabbinically, but it's mutter to get benefit. I could sell it to a guy or I could feed it to my animal. So it turns out the following. So let's take two cases so far. If the dog food is pork and milk, no problem, because the Yisr of Basar B'chalav does not apply to non-kosher meat. If it is chicken and milk, it's also no problem, because Basar B'chalav that is only forbidden rabbinically is mutar bahana. Now, the question becomes, what if there's beef involved? What if there's beef involved? Uh, again, it could be a beef-pork-chicken mixture, or some dog foods, the more expensive ones, are all beef, whatever it would be. Now, this is beef and milk. So the question becomes the following. The beef, even though it's beef, even though it comes from a cow, is still non-kosher because it wasn't shechted. So this is the big machlokas. The machlokas is this. The din that basar b'chalav doesn't apply to treif meat is that only if the species is treif, like pig? Or is that even if it's not kosher because it wasn't shechted? Which is the case in, in all dog food. So if you adopt the permissible position that even if it wasn't shechted, it's treated as treif meat, and therefore there's no law of basar b'chalav, you would have no problem. Uh, but other people are machmer on it. So my advice to you would be this. Again, you have to check ing ingredient labels a little bit. Uh, and that is, uh, if it's only chicken, even if there's milk, no problem to feed it to your pet. If it's only pork, even if there's milk, there is no problem feeding with your pet. But if it is a dog food that contains meat, not meat, I mean beef, beef, uh, then one should only use it if it does not contain in the ingredients listing dairy, milk, or the like. Now, I'm oversimplifying because if you really go into this in depth, you can make distinctions. 
between powdered milk and liquid milk. You know, there's a lot of, lot of different distinctions here. But just to avoid any complications, uh, beef, which also has milk in the ingredients, should be avoided uh, because of the din of basur b'chalav. Uh, but if it's pork or chicken, uh, don't worry about it. And some, uh, can, again, because of digestive problems, just like human beings, some dogs can digest chicken easier than beef. So they actually do have dog foods that are chicken or pork uh, as opposed to beef uh, for uh, delicate uh, dogs, okay? So that's an important thing that maybe you didn't realize. Again, do you understand the concept here? The concept is you can give your, your animal non-kosher food. That, that's not a problem. But anything that is usher in benefit, you can't give to your animal. And basur b'chalav is something that's usher in benefit. And this brings me to the next shayla of chametz, chametz on Pesach. Chametz uh, is a very, very severe avera. I know that uh, it's Rosh Chodesh today, so obviously everyone is thinking about uh, cleaning for, for Pesach. Uh, and uh, chametz is unique in a few ways. We're, obviously, we're not allowed to eat chametz for seven days. In Chutzlar, it's eight days. That's for sure. But not only are we not allowed to eat chametz, we're not allowed to own or possess chametz. That's why you have to sell your chametz, right, and, uh, and the like, because you're not allowed to own, meaning even if I don't eat the chametz, if I own chametz during Pesach, I am transgressing two negative commandments, lo yei l'cha chametz, and lo yimotzei l'cha chametz. You shall not have your chametz seen by you, your chametz, nor can you have it found in your possession. Now, the issue is only if I own it, meaning if I walk by in the street and I see bread on Pesach, that's not my problem. And in fact, even if I'm a guest in somebody's home, and this may be a problem, unfortunately, uh, with some families, Let's say you go to your, your home, you go to your parents for Pesach. And let's say, unfortunately, again, I mean, hoping this wouldn't be the case, but unfortunately, let's assume they don't keep Pesach at all. So they have bread, they have bread out, they have all sorts of things. Are you allowed to stay in the house? Are you doing any Aveira because you're, you're, you're sitting at a table that there, where there's chametz and everything else? Well, obviously, you have to be very, very careful about what you eat and how you eat, and that's, that's for sure. And if you have any questions, you can ask me or ask your other teachers. That's a very important point. But you're not transgressing anything because you're looking at chametz or there's chametz in the house that you're staying because the Aveira of the Torah is for you to own chametz. I'm not allowed to own chametz. If the chametz does not belong to me, I have no sin. Okay, that's important to understand. So this could, be, this could happen in your parents' house. This could happen in your work office if you're working during Cholomoe, right? So that's another question, should you work during Cholomoe? But assuming you're going to your office Cholomoe, so there'll be, you know, people will be eating chametz. Some of them are goyim. Hopefully, they'll be goyim. Unfortunately, they may be Jews. But that's not your problem. I mean, it's your problem in a spiritual sense. That any Jew that sins is my problem. But it's not a halachic violation that you're looking at someone else's chametz. So chametz, you're not allowed to eat, of course. Chametz, you're not allowed to own. And chametz, you're not allowed to have benefit from. I can't feed it even to my animals or give it to, during Pesach, I cannot give it to my next door neighbor even. I mean, let's assume I want to give a gift of chametz. Right? Let's assume uh, this following case. Let's imagine the middle of Pesach. 
I discover I have chametz. Right? I discover, I open up a drawer, and I see a loaf of bread, or I see a cake. Ay, 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 that's an awful thing. So my instinct might be, if I have, let's say I live in America and I have a next door neighbor that's a guy, my instinct might be, I'll give it to my guy, my next door neighbor, as a gift. Do you know that you can't, actually can't do that? What you might be able to do, you might be able to leave it anonymously, but, but you can't give it as a gift and he knows you're giving him a gift because when you give him a gift, he's going to think well of you and you're getting benefit from chametz. Do you, hear, you see the issue here? You're not allowed to get benefit from chametz. Uh, you certainly can't sell it for money and you can't even give it away as a gift. You may be able to give it away as an anonymous gift where nobody knows that you're the one that gave it. Uh, although most people these days don't, don't uh, take anonymous food. Somebody may have put poison in it or razor blades in it or whatever, whatever, they, uh, whatever they do. I have to address my avarice. You know, when I was, when I was young, uh, very young, <laughs> I went uh, trick-or-treating. You know, even, even, uh, even um, Orthodox kids went trick-or-treating when we went to Halloween. And, uh, you know, we took candy from, you know, as long as it was kosher, uh, we took, and in those days, all candy was kosher, that's, that's another issue, but uh, we took candy from everybody. And now I'm reading in all these years, people put razor blades and, and candy, I don't know, all the, I don't know why, <laughs> I mean, people do just meshugging the thing, it's almost like, uh, you know, evil for the sake of evil, like there's not even any benefits, any benefit to it, like what, uh, what pleasure does somebody get by putting poison or something in a, in, uh, in Canada. Okay. But whatever, whatever, whatever it would be, uh, Lamaisa, if you find chametz in your house during Pesach, you basically have to destroy it. That, that's what you have to do. You have to destroy it. And by the way, interestingly enough, touch it? well, Chalamoid, you can touch it. Now, if you find it on Yomtev, this is important, if you find it on Yomtev, cover it. you cover it. You cannot, you cannot touch it, and you cannot even burn it. So you're actually stuck. If you find a loaf of bread on the first, well, first day of Pesach, Shabbos, no, I'm sorry, it's Sunday. Yeah, but if you find it, huh? What if you flush it? You cannot do it. It's muksa. You're not allowed to move it. So cholamoed, moed, you can burn it or flush it. Yeah, you can burn it or flush it. No, you can't because you can't feed your dog chametz because you're getting benefit. That's the important, that's, that's the point I want to make. That, right? So. Even on cholamoed, you can't feed That's correct. That's correct. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, I'll get to that. So if your neighbor is non-Jewish, it's like giving them a gift. So you see, you're going to be stuck either way because if the dog belongs to a Jew, that Jew is not allowed to get benefit from chametz. So I can't give chametz to, to a Jewish-owned dog. And if it's a non-Jewish-owned dog, uh, I'm giving a gift to a non-Jew. So if he knows uh, I'm doing it. I'm getting benefit from the gratitude that he has. You see? So that's okay. It's not okay. Oh, it's not okay. Remember, not getting benefit means you cannot feed it to your animal, and you cannot sell it to a guy, and you cannot give it as a gift to a guy. So again, so if you find it on Yom Tif and Kal Homer Shabbos, you got to cover it up, and that's all you do. Okay. Uh, once it's Cholamoed, you then either burn it or flush it down the toilet, you cannot give chametz to your animal, 
and you cannot give chametz to another Jew's animal because he would be getting benefit, and you cannot give chametz to a non-Jew's animal because if he knows it's coming from you, you're giving a gift to him and he's going to think that you're a great guy or a great uh, woman, and that's considered getting benefit from chametz. Okay? How about giving chametz to like a random cat in the street? Uh, so that would seem, seemingly would be okay, actually. In other words, if you want to feed a wild cat, uh, I think that would be permissible because you're not getting any... I mean, the, the feline gratitude is not called getting benefit. It's only the human gratitude that is called getting, getting benefit. Anyway, cats aren't grateful anyway. Yeah? Um, so, say, your neighbor's not Jewish. They have a dog in the backyard. Yeah. Tell your neighbor you just chuck the bread over the fence. I think that would be okay. That's what I'm saying. That would be similar to feeding a wild animal, uh, which you could do. So now, this is immediately a problem with dog food. With, with, not just dog food, all, all pet food. Because pet food, generally, unless it's expensive, all beef, is typically going to be a mixture of grain in it. Um, might be. So the problem basically is, now, not all grain is chametz. For example, buckwheat is not uh, chametz. Rice. In fact, here let me make a, a, an important point. You know about kidneys? You know kidneys? Right? Kidneys are legumes, rice, corn, beans. Now, what's the story about kidneys? Rice, corn, beans, popcorn, buckwheat, quinoa. Uh, so, so here's the thing. That is not chametz. Chametz is only five grains become chametz when they ferment. The five grains are the same grains that you make on, wheat, barley, oats, rye, and spelt. Anything else is not chametz. Corn is not chametz. Buckwheat, even though it has wheat in its name, but buckwheat is not. Uh, chametz, rice is not chametz. So you beans. can't have buckwheat matzah, right? No, you cannot. You cannot. In order to have matzah, it has to be something that's chametz. In other words, it correlates the five species that can become chametz. You can have oat matzah. You can have rye matzah. It boggles your mind. Huh? It boggles my mind that like yeah. we don't eat everything that we eat. Like matzah is the epitome of chametz. That's correct. How uh, weird is that? 100% correct. It's a very good observation uh, that the Torah is telling you the very thing, the very thing that's the most usher on Pesach becomes the greatest mitzvah of Pesach. That shows you how you sanctify. You can take like the worst thing and turn it into an elevated high thing. This is fascinating. Again, yeah, it's, it's very important to understand this. This is the halacha. Anything that cannot be chametz is not kosher for matzah. So oat matzah is very, very helpful for people who have uh, gluten intolerance uh, because oat is the only one of those grains that does not have gluten, right? So uh, if you have celiac disease or any other gluten intolerance, so some people grin and bear it. They'll eat a little matzah and they'll get sick. Okay, if you have to, you have to. Uh, but uh-huh. Is that egg? No, 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 no. Egg matzah is right here. No, no. Uh, oat matzah is regular flour and water. Nothing else added. The regular shmur matzah wheat doesn't have egg in it. Absolutely not. Okay, there are a lot of things. No, no, let me... All shmur, all, all shmur matzah, all shmur matzah is flour and water and nothing else. Nothing else. 
Amazing. No salt, no nothing. No sugar. No sugar, nothing else. Flour and water and nothing else. Egg matzah is not kosher for the Seder. Egg matzah is not kosher for the Seder. In fact, Ashkenazim don't eat it for Pesach at all, but it's certainly not kosher for the for the Seder. But oat, oat matzah, oat matzah is the same as wheat matzah, flour and water. But the reason why oat matzah is uh, useful for people is it's a gluten-free matzah, uh, so it's good if you have a, a gluten intolerance. The only thing is, oat matzah is very expensive. Um, all shmura matzah is expensive, right? As you know, although I don't know if you're going to bake your own. I don't know, it goes up every year. So <laughs> I don't it know does? what the price is. Yeah, it typically what if you can't afford it? Well, uh, talk to Chabad. Chabad will give you. Chabad will give you some free matzahs if you if you if you, if you need it. No, no, it's only for the seder. It's only for the seder. Uh, but oat matzah is like three or four times more expensive than regular uh, shmura matzah. So it's like super expensive shmura matzah. Uh, shmura matzah is very expensive. Yes, yes, it is. It is. It is. But again, I mean, I, I think. Uh, I think it tastes good. Chabad, no, but Chabad tries. I know. I, I I, they probably do it here too. But I know in America they, they, they try to make it available for people, uh, either for free or really, really uh, cheap. Uh, so kind. Yeah. So is oat milk like absolutely not. Because usually... If what? Oat milk. Oh, okay, okay. So oat milk is absolutely no good. No good. Because the oats in the water, it's, it's like you blend it for like 30 seconds and then strain it. Yeah. Well, I, I understand. But the problem basically is, I mean, listen. Say I mean, for I mean, I mean, let me... Let me let, no, like, if you want... I mean, I mean, I mean let, me raise, let me raise a simple question. Uh, why can't I just buy flour? The flour doesn't become chametz unless it's... 18 minutes with water, right? Can I just buy flour and make matzah during Pesach? The reason that you can't, because the truth of the matter is, today, all flours are washed, and washed, and therefore, they're all chametz. So even if the oats are just uh, soaked a little bit before they produce the milk, there was a washing process and a cleaning process. So you have to make the assumption that it's all chametz. It was all uh, in contact with water for a constant process. Now, that's chametz. Chametz are the five grains. But what about buckwheat? What about rice? What about corn? What about peas? What about string beans? What about, uh, well, mustard seeds have to be... These are called kidneyos. Now, kidneyos are legumes. Uh, Do'oraisa, they are not chametz. And sfardim eat them. Sfardim eat them because there's no problem. But the minog, it's a minog, but it's a very strong minog. It's been around a long time, a thousand years. The minog of Ashkenazim is we don't eat kitneos on Pesach. So if you're a Svardi, you can have rice and corn. If you're an Ashkenazi, you don't have rice and corn. Uh, and if you are an Ashkenazi woman who marries a Svardi man, you can take on your husband's minhagim. But vice versa as well. Wait, if I'm, I marry Svardi, I can take down his mom? Yes, absolutely. <gasps> absolutely. 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 So if you really like rice, uh, you'll marry a Svardi. Uh, That's but, the, but, but the other way is also true, unfortunately. Lechumra, that is, if you're a Svardic woman who marries an Ashkenazi, uh, you're not allowed to have the kidneyos. Now, the thing about kidneyos is that even for Ashkenazi, Kidneyos is not the same as chametz. Kidneyos, I'm not allowed to eat, but I'm allowed to keep in my house. So if I have rice, 
I don't have to sell my rice. I can keep my rice. I mean, obviously, I should put it in a cabinet where it's sealed so I won't use it. But technically, there is no Easter to own kidneyos or get benefit from kidneyos. There is only an Easter to eat kidneyos. Now, that's actually very relevant for pet food. Because here is the thing. If the grain in the pet food is kidneyos, like corn or rice, I'm allowed to feed it to my animal because it's only kidneyos. Well, if I'm Sephardi, for sure. But even an Ashkenazi could feed it to the animal because kidneyos is mutar in benefit. You see? But the problem is, if the grain is wheat or uh, rye or oats or spelt or barley, then I do have a real chametz problem. Now, there are, there are a variety of pet foods, and you can usually find a pet food that is not uh, chametz. But let's say you have, sometimes this happens, I mean, I, I get these questions a lot. Uh, you know, a dog is on, or a cat is on a special di diet for digestive problems, right? You know, animals have mm -hmm. digestive problems too. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain, like, medically or veterinarily approved type of food that is good for them. And that happens to be chametz, and you don't have a substitution. So what do you do if your pet is only going to eat a chametz diet on Pesach? So here, what you got to do is, this is a little uh, difficult. Number one, you have to sell not just the pet food. The pet. You sell the pet food so it's not, you don't own that chametz during Pesach. But you also have to sell the pet. Do you understand why it's two steps here? I got to sell the pet food because I'm not allowed to own chametz during Pesach. But even if I sell the pet food so it belongs to the guy, I'm not allowed to feed my animal chametz because I'm getting benefit from the chametz, even though it belongs to the guy. So you got to sell both the animal, and you talk to a rabbi how to do this, and the pet food, right? And moreover, there's a third step, which is going to be the hardest step of all, that it is recommended that the animal and the food be physically transferred to a new location. No. So that would actually mean that if I'm selling my dog and selling my, uh, my dog food to a guy, the guy actually should take physical custody of the animal during Pesach. Now, you can have visitation, <laughs> like a divorce. You can kind of uh, visit your dog and take him out for a walk. Uh, but the dog should uh, be staying uh, basically in the guy's house. Now, if you're going away for Pesach and you're leaving the, the animal behind, then it's okay because you can actually sell your apartment. Not just the chametz, you sell your apartment. So you in a sense... Well, you have somebody checking in, in other words, and you have a guy checking in. So, so if you're going away for Pesach and you have somebody checking in on your pet who's a guy, so you can leave the animal in the apartment because you're not going to be there during Pesach. But if you're going to be there during Pesach, you actually have to sell the dog, sell the dog food, and transfer the dog out of your house. So that's a little awkward. The best thing by far is if you could find a non-chamet substitute. That would make life much, much easier. And as I say, even if it has kidneyos, it is okay because you're allowed to feed, even an Ashkenazi can feed kidneyos to their, to their animal. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can do the mitzvah of having matzah on any of 
Absolutely, all five. Uh, as I say, the, no, no, that's right. That's why I said there is oak matzah. Uh, I'm not aware of rye matzah. I think rye matzah would be very hard to make. Like, oh, yeah. Spelt. Spelt, yeah, yeah, spelt. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, spelt is, is uh, even more clear than, than oats because spelt is very closely related to wheat. In fact, the Gemara itself says spelt is treated as a species of wheat, but it's easier to, um, mm. easier to digest for a lot of people. Uh, but, but it still has gluten, so, so if you have gluten uh, intolerance, uh, oat is the only matzah that, that will help for gluten intolerance. They do make gluten-free matzah, though. Do they make gluten-free wheat, wheat matzah? Are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah. I have it because it's crunchier. But you know that it's wheat? What? I have to check that. Okay. Wheat matzo. It's crunchier than I'm, I'm going to check that because I, I had always thought, okay, I'll, I'll check it. Maybe I'm wrong. I had always thought that the only gluten free matzah there was was oat matzah. Um, by the way, oat matzah is strange. Oat matzah is very bitter. I don't know why because oat is a, is a sweet grain. You know, you know, it has a sweetness to it. But for some reason, in the, in the matzah baking process, uh, oat matzah has a very, very bitter, uh, bitter aftertaste to it. Okay, so uh, everyone understands the problem with uh, your pets and, and Pesach. Now, when it comes to birds, birds are usually good because usually the, the grains that they feed birds are kidneyous, buckwheat, uh, millets. Millets, for example, is also not uh, one of the five species. So if you look at canary feed, uh, you will see that canary feed at most is kidneyous. But you gotta check it, you gotta check it. If the ingredients say wheat or oats or whatever, barley, then you got to be very, very careful because we treat it as hummus. Now, your point is correct. It's not automatically the case that every grain is hummus. Maybe it didn't ferment. But halakhically, we make the assumption, yes, because of washing and processing. So, so you are correct, theoretically, that it's possible to have raw grains that did not properly ferment. But halakhically, we, we are always afraid. Uh, that it's treated as hummus. By the way, there's something else relevant about kidney as you need to know about medicines. What's the story with medicines on, on, on Pesach? Now, uh, I, I, obviously I'm not talking about sakana. If it's something that you need, uh, for example, high blood pressure medicine is considered to be a matter of life and death. Uh, and, you know, don't worry about it if, if, if one has to take that. But I'm talking about medicines that are not, not a matter of life and death. So medicines can be chametz for a variety of ways. Let's first talk about pills, then I'll talk about liquid. What is the problem with chametz in pills? It is primarily starch, because essentially in a pill, you have an active ingredient, which is the medicine, and then you have the starch, which is a binder. But the starch could be made of different types of starch. Uh, most pills are corn starch or rice starch, because that's cheaper. So corn starch and rice starch for Sephardim are perfectly fine, and even for Ashkenazim, they're, they're only kidneyos, and kidneyos are permitted for men in medicine, meaning even though you cannot eat kidneyos stam, but kidneyos lirafua, lirafua are mutter. So if the starch is corn or rice-based, then you can actually take the pill on Pesach even if it's not life-threatening. But occasionally, a pill will have wheat starch as the active ingredient, or oat starch, and that is uh, chametz. 
Uh, so generally speaking, uh, one should try to avoid it, although some people aren't, do permit it for the following reason. There, is a, there are a lot of rules for Pesach. They make the argument that any chametz that is so bitter that even a dog would not eat it is not considered chametz anymore. So the argument goes, if you take a pill, a non-chewable, a pill that you just swallow, if you were to chew that pill, I don't know if you ever did it, take a Tylenol and chew a Tylenol. Yeah. You will see, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. It's a very, very bad, unpleasant taste. Very. So the argument goes that some people say medicines have no problem with chametz because it's so bitter that even a dog wouldn't eat it. So as a result, you can, uh, you can, uh, you can eat it. You can take it. Right, so that's a big machlokas. That's why you'll find that some kashras lists will tell you, don't take these pills because they have chametz in them. And some kashras organizations will tell you, take anything you want, no problem. You understand the machlokas? Because the machlokas basically is, on one hand, the pills do have wheat starch, which is chametz. On the other hand, the taste is so bitter that uh, a dog wouldn't eat it. Right? That's why this is not a hetero for dog food. <laughs> dog food, by definition, dog does eat. But this is a hetero for uh, medicines. Uh, and uh, that's the issue. And this is, by the way, the same issue with shampoos. You don't realize. There are shampoos that contain grain in them. Oat, in particular. Right? You've seen that, you know, there are fancy shampoos that have oats in them. It's chametz. But the question becomes, uh, in that form, it's not even edible by a dog. Right? So that would be the, the big, big question. So I'm not here to give you an exact psak, but I want you to understand the nature of, of Pesach shopping and, 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 and the like. Because on one hand, there is chametz, but on the other hand, it's not edible by, uh, by a dog. Now, when it comes to liquid medicine, liquid medicine is a bit more tricky, like cough syrup. Because there, you are dealing with flavored things. Flavored, it has a flavor. Maybe it's not the greatest flavor, but they have cherry flavor, or whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Because you're swallowing it, and you're tasting it. So they make it more uh, drinkable. Now, the problem is that many liquid medicines have alcohol in them. Now, what is alcohol made, made from? So it depends. There is grain alcohol, which is chametz, if it's from the five grains. But then there's corn alcohol, and there's even synthetic alcohol, which is still uh, drinkable. So there you need to know. So, so, so the point I'm making is that uh, liquid medicines have much more serious chametz problems than uh, tablets uh, and capsules, because tablets and capsules are, by definition, very, very bitter and not edible by a dog. Liquid medicines do have a pleasant taste on some, to some degree, and uh, therefore, if there is actual chametz alcohol in them, you cannot use them, and you shouldn't even own them on Pesach. You have to sell them. Now, if your pills are chewable pills, like children's, vit like children's vitamins, it's the same problem. Because there, if there is chametz in a children's vitamin, uh, you cannot own it or give it during Pesach. Uh, 
uh, because that would be owning chametz and eating chametz and getting benefit from chametz. So a chewable pill is the same problem as a liquid medicine. But I will tell you this, if you peruse the medicine list, you will discover that uh, the vast majority of starch in pills is not chametz, it's, it's, it's kidney or starch. So there, there, are very, there are actually very, very few medicines, uh, well, not, not liquid, but there are very, very few uh, pills that raise chametz problems, very few. In other words, uh, if I had to pick a number out of uh, 300 medicines, maybe 15 are chametz. But, but if, you're ta- if, the, <laughs> if you're taking one of the 15, uh, you need to, to be aware, aware of it. Now, as I say, if there's any uh, serious medical problem, don't worry about it. Uh, obviously, uh, God forbid, one should never, ever put their life or health in danger. Uh, even to keep the laws of chametz, it's a matter of pikuach nefesh. But if it's if it's not a serious situation, you have to be careful about all of these halachas. Yeah. And what about makeup? Okay, so makeup is the same problem, exactly the same problem. Uh, lip gloss. Yeah, everything. You no, know, whether it's lip gloss, lipstick, uh, makeup, all the different powders. So there's a, yeah everything everything has chametz in it. Everything has uh, alcohol in it. Everything has not 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 everything, but a lot of things do. Uh, but there are those who permit it, again, on the grounds that since a dog wouldn't eat it, it's not even uh, something a dog would eat, and dogs are not that fussy, uh, it's not considered prohibited. So that would be the, that would be the primary issue. In cosmetics, in shampoos, in uh, pills, uh, this is a very important rule of chametz, nifsal miachilas kelev. If it is so bad that even a dog would not eat it, it doesn't have the laws of chametz. Uh, but as I say, that does not apply to liquid medicines that have a, a taste. The fact that a dog wouldn't eat the cough syrup doesn't make a difference. If I can taste something candy-like or sweet in it, uh, that would be enough to make it forbidden. Yeah. So why do some people buy brand new makeup, brand new things? Okay, so the brand, brand, the, so the brand new thing is really for a different problem. Uh, the brand new thing is not because of the thing being chametz, because they may buy the same brand, brand new, but it's because in the course of the year, let's take lipstick for example, in the course of the year, right? Lipstick, right? So uh, you, you ate a meal, right? You, ate a, you, you just had pieces of challah, right? And then you do lipstick. So what happens is, in the lipstick, there may be crumbs of, uh, you know, I mean, it's a chamrat. I mean, you could visual. In other words, that's a different problem. The problem with getting everything brand new is not because the lipstick is chametz, but because it may have uh, absorbed crumbs, you know, from uh, from the table. Same thing with spices, right? People get people get new spices for Pesach. Now, pepper is not chametz, and garlic is not chametz. Although some people have a minute not to use garlic, but 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 you know. Salt. Salt is not chametz. We just, we just that. Yeah, yeah. These, these are I'm not here. I'm not here to go over every 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 uh, minag. I don't want to say crazy. I don't want to say crazy minag. Okay, but but regular spices are not chametz. But people do have a custom not to use the the open spices that they had during the year, not because the spices are chametz, but because there may be some uh, stuff you know that got into it by handling. Or whatever. So these are time-honored chumros of the laws of, of of Pesach. That's why people get new makeup and everything else. But as they say, uh, if you're really, you know, if it's hard for you, I, I don't, don't want to, you know, give you a total 
leniency. But if it's hard for you, you know, you don't really have to get. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not you don't really have to get new makeup or a new shampoo or all that stuff as long as, uh, you know. You should sell your lipstick. Say again. No, you should sell your lipstick. No, just Huh? Should you sell your lipstick? No, you don't have to sell your lipstick. Uh, no, no, you know you don't have to sell it. But the only question is, some, some would say it's better not to use it. You, you, you use something. Yeah. Um, what about toothpaste? Oh, so toothpaste is an interesting question. Uh, some people say toothpaste also, uh, at least if it's not flavored. Like we have to differentiate between plain toothpaste and flavor. You know, there are flavored toothpaste. Flavored toothpaste very definitely needs to be kosher le Pesach, uh, and there may be some alcohol or grain extract in there. And a lot of brands are kosher for Pesach, but, but some are not. Uh, if it's unflavored, many opinions do permit it with the idea that it's like so disgusting that uh, a dog wouldn't eat it. So that, that, that comes up to toothpaste as well. Others say that uh, you know, it doesn't reach that level because it is in your mouth and you are putting it in your mouth, so it doesn't have the rule of being so disgusting that you know, you would never uh, eat it. Yeah. Yeah, so mouthwash is very important. Uh, mouthwash may be hummus, exactly. Uh, because mouthwash, unless maybe it's plain, old-fashioned Listerine, but if the mouthwash has flavors, yeah. and it, even if you wouldn't want to swallow it that much, uh, it will be hummus if, if, only if, it has grain alcohol. Now, it happens to be, again, I, I don't have all the brands in front of me, there are guides, it happens to be that most, most mouthwashes are kosher for Pesach because they don't have the grain alcohol. But you do have to check a, a list, like uh, the OU has a list, uh, different, uh, you can get the lists online, uh, a lot of them online. Uh, you need to check, you need to check. Now, do you have to get a new bottle? Let, let's assume you have kosher mouthwash. Do I have to get a new bottle? Not, not really. Okay, you know the min, the min are, you know, to get new, but uh, you really don't have to get something new if it's a bottle of mouthwash or something, you know. Do you buy new? Huh? Do I? I try. I try to, but it's, you know, it depends on. Uh, I believe in you. You know, it depends on uh, the energy level of the year. You know? yeah, <laughs> Every year is a different energy level. Yeah. What's the situation with braces? Or oh, okay. Excellent. Excellent question. We know that you have to conjure things for Pesach, right? Uh, because any, any, any vessel that absorbed chametz will give out the chametz when you cook in it. So that's how you kosher it, right? You put it in boiling water, you use a blowtorch. So, so the truth of the matter is, uh, braces are metal. And in the course of uh, the year, they absorbed hot chametz. So uh, you have to kosher your braces the way you kosher a pot. So this depends, it depends. If it's regular old-fashioned metal braces, you actually drop it in a pot of boiling water. Wait, but it's, it's glued to your teeth. Oh, it depends, it's glued, it's glued to your teeth? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, oh, okay, that's a little different. I, I, I don't know how the braces are today. Uh, no, if they're not, if they're not removable, if they're not removable, uh, then you don't have to kosher them. What you can do is, the theory of koshering is the same way it absorbed is how it gives out. So what you do is take a glass of tea or hot water, hot water of the same temperature as the tea that you drink, not hotter, and drink it and swish it, swish it around. In other words, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be, no, just, just, just to be sure that you've covered everything. It doesn't have to be boiling. It can be the same temperature 
as you use, as you drink. Okay? Uh, but if it's removable braces, it's actually preferable to put them in boiling, in boiling water, if they're metal. If they're plastic or if they're soft and they, they would melt, then you could do it, uh, what I just described, just take hot liquid in your mouth. So then like with retainer, if you could boil it, boil it. If you can't, should you use denture cleaner and like hot water? Yeah, that, that would be correct. That would be correct. Yeah, but it is something to uh, to, to be aware. Okay. If, um, if you hold it, you have to cost you your braces for example. Yep. And then why would you have to like cost your braces if they're in that, that's a very excellent. That's a very excellent question, uh, and uh, logically, uh, it's a contradiction, right? That's what you're saying. Uh, but the short answer is that we have something called chumra of Pesach, meaning meaning that Pesach often has chumros that are beyond what you normally do in the course of the uh, course of the year. Okay. Alrighty. All right. So that's a little bit about uh, to know about Pesach. But again, I, I'm bringing it up because I'm glad you're asking me questions about Pesach, but I brought it up in the context of feeding a dog, uh, the issues of dog food, uh, to be, uh, to be aware of. Right yeah? yeah, so, uh, so beware of this if you have pets, and uh, again, it's Nogeya medicine, and it's Nogeya cosmetics, uh, mouthwash, uh, everything, everything else. A lot of stuff does have chametz in it. Um, and you have to be careful. Um, now, even little things you wouldn't even notice. I mean, I was just looking. Um, I have, my son is now uh, in his 30s, uh, but when he was in second grade, he made a picture, and on the picture they glued, this is like second grade, they glued uh, pieces of macaroni. <laughs> right? And the picture is just in our house, you know, uh, we don't pay attention to it. But you realize that Pesach, you know, we got to pay attention to that picture. It has chametz on it, and we got to put it away or, or whatever it is. So things that you don't know, you don't even notice. You have to be aware that uh, they are they are potentially uh, potentially chametz. Okay. Uh, what happens, by the way? Uh, this has ever happened to you? Uh, they used to they send. Uh, it doesn't happen in Israel. They don't give anything away for free. But uh, sometimes you get free samples in the mail of a new breakfast cereal. Ever happened? Like you know, uh, Kellogg's invents some new cereal. And they send you a free little box. You know, it's a little box. A little box of cereal comes to your house uh, during uh, during Pesach. Under control. Well, yeah. So what do you what, so what do you what do you do with it? Do, do I have to? Just, right. So the basic idea is that uh, I basically leave it leave it out. Uh, or sometimes what happens is I, I brought it into the house. I didn't know what it was. I opened it up. It's a box of chametz. I should have intention not to acquire ownership. And then, and then I can use it after Pesach, meaning I don't have to destroy it. As long as I intend, this is not mine, anyone who can take it, I could then use it after Pesach. You see, I only have to destroy Chametz if it belonged to me that I find during Pesach. But I could intend that I shouldn't acquire ownership, and then you're not going to have a, a problem. In fact, somebody told me a story of... Um, they were living next to a Russian couple who were very, very unfamiliar with Judaism, and they tried to uh, teach them about Judaism, and uh, they celebrated Purim together. So they sent them a beautiful, right, the religious couple sent the, uh, the Russian couple a beautiful shalach manas. So a month later, on Pesach, there's a ring on the doorbell, the Cholomoe, and the Russian couple comes, and they say, we want to reciprocate the favor for you. 
and they brought in like all sorts of cake and all sorts of things. And when the when they saw that the religious couple turned white, he pointed, "No, everything has an OU. Everything is kosher. Everything was kosher, but it was chametz, right?" So they went to a supermarket, and they bought like OU stuff, but it was during uh, it was during Pesach. So you know, a little bit of a dilemma. What do you do in a case like that? But there, once again, the Eitzah is you have kavana not to acquire ownership, and that's going to be okay. Okay, so now uh, let me talk about sterilization. This is a biggie, biggie, biggie. Remember, our topic is not Pesach today. Our topic is uh, pets. And sterilization. This is a big, 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 big problem. Uh, anyone that owns a dog or a cat uh, will be encouraged, generally, to get the dog or the cat uh, neutered, uh, whether it's a male or a female. Uh, and uh, number one, to keep the population down. And number two, it also prevents cancers and other problems uh, developing. Uh, and uh, here's the problem. There is an iser in the Torah, an iser in the Torah to sterilize animals by Where? removing, it's in Vayikra. Uh, by removing their reproductive organs. Now, this is true whether it's the male genitalia or the female genitalia. By the way, uh, for, that's why for a human, vasectomies are prohibited for men and tubal ligations are, are forbidden for women for, for the exact same reason. That is a form of sterilization, meaning even when you have a heter for birth control, maybe we'll give a share on that, even when there's a heter for birth control, it cannot involve any type of mutilation of the reproductive organ. This is called sirus in Hebrew, sirus. Samach, yud, resh, vav, samach, sirus. And this applies both to uh, humans and to animals. And according to many opinions, it even applies to non-Jews, meaning even non-Jews under the Noahide laws are not permitted to be misares. So here is the problem that I face. I own it, I mean, not, not I, but I mean, hypothetically. Let's assume I own a dog, and I want to get the dog spayed. Now, even if my veterinarian is not Jewish, even if my veterinarian is not Jewish, I'm not allowed to ask the non-Jew to sterilize my dog because many opinions say the non-Jew is not allowed to do it. And if I ask a non-Jew to do something, I don't know if you know this halacha, you know the din of lifnei I'm not allowed to cause a person to sin? Yeah. The, the avera of causing a person to sin is not only causing a Jew to sin. Yeah. I cannot cause a non-Jew to violate a law of the Sheva Mitzvos B'nai Noach. Now, if sterilization is considered to be a form of uh, murder or whatever it would be, uh, I cannot ask a non-Jew to sterilize my animal because I would be transgressing lifneiver lo So the question becomes, how do I, well, there are a few questions. Number one, if I'm a Jew, actually there are two places you can ask this question. If I'm a Jew, how can I get my animal spayed? Another question you might ask is from the perspective of the veterinarian. If I'm a Jewish veterinarian who wants to keep halacha, how can I practice my profession? Do you, do you understand that the bread and butter income of a veterinarian 
is spaying animals. Now, once in a while, he does open heart surgery, you know, <laughs> but that's rare. A vet makes his parnasa with spaying animals. That's what he does. If you tell a vet that he's not allowed to do that, he's not going to be able to make a make a living uh, because, as I say, you know, and oh, the fancier stuff is very, very rare. Unless you're a zoo veterinarian where you can do all sorts of stuff on elephants or whatever, yeah. So most pounds require the animals to be spayed or neutered before they're adopted, in which case it's the pet is going to be fixed no matter what. Yeah. Like usually it's a part of the fee that you pay to adopt. They just yeah. like automatically do it. Yeah. So then in that case, you're not like actively seeking it out. It's just something that's already going to be done. No, so that's very good. So for example, it's a double pachut. In fact, this is recommended. If you buy an animal that's already been neutered before you took possession of it, that's perfectly fine. You didn't ask. You didn't uh, request. It was done without your open agreement. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be okay. That would be the recommended way. Uh, but let me just mention that here, too, the postgim have allowed a certain evasion. And that is, if you sell your dog, similar to Pesach, you sell your dog to a non-Jew, and the non-Jew takes it to a non-Jew. So some permitted it that way, because it's a non-Jew that's making the request to a non-Jew. Are you allowed to ask them to do that, or do you have to kind of like hint at it? So here the post can say that the Isser of Lifne Iver is only when you directly tell a non-Jew to do a sin. But if you tell non-Jew one, to tell non-Jew too, that's a, a, a two-step removed, and that's, that's considered to be permitted. So that's a Now, the only question is, what does the veterinarian do? That's the other question. Yeah. I'm a veterinarian. What can I do? I can't do the spaying. So the short answer is that uh, he has a non-Jewish uh, nurse. It's the same idea, meaning he does everything up to the final cut. And the final cut is done by a non-Jewish employee. He, now again, these are not That's totally true. logical because how can he tell his nurse to do it if, she's, if she or he is a non-Jew? You got a problem, but, but this is what many people rely upon. It, it's very, very, it's very, very tenuous, yeah. What if you work, like I worked for many years at a shelter yeah. at home when I was younger. Yeah. And like a lot of part of working there is like, Kind of setting up the dogs that come in. Right. So, so, so this is. Preventing that. No, no. So this is this is where where you have a legitimacy. Meaning, as long as you're not doing, you're not requesting, and you're not doing, the actual cutting. I remember I had to call the vet and set up the appointments and stuff. That, that's okay. In other words, there are halachos that you're removed from. In other words, you're not allowed to ask for the sin to be done, and you're not allowed to do the sin. But I can set up the appointment. But you're setting up things. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. You are allowed to. But that is kind of asking for it. Well, well you're, you're 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 responding to people asking you. You're not. Uh, you're yeah. just recording information. Yeah. Or like my mom sometimes was in charge of like when we got a new dog, filling up the paperwork. Yeah. And then like, yeah, like filling up the work, and then being like, okay, well, this one, this ready time to go get neutered, and then and then. Well, it depends on how directly you're asking. I mean, if you're just a secretary, or you're just a receptionist, or you're just a coordinator, you're not initiating any request. Okay, yeah, yeah. But if you're the one who's initiating the request, you have a lifne 
you have a problem. By the way, I want to point out that the issue of sterilization is only if it's anatomical, meaning only if it's cutting. Now, there are other forms of sterilization that are chemical, such as injections or drugs, and that actually is permitted. So if there's a method of sterilization that does not involve physically removal of reproductive organs, but simply it cuts off the blood supply or whatever it would be, that would actually be permitted. So you need to... Uh, uh, for birth control... Well, let me put it this way. It, it wouldn't be considered uh, the issue of sterilization, but on the other hand, to the extent that it's permanent, it would be wrong because you're totally getting rid of the possibility of pru or vu. So we would not say it for, for a human, okay? So that's uh, what you need to know about sterilization and spaying. Uh, by far, the best thing to do is to get a dog or a cat that has already been neutered. Then you do not have any problem uh, whatsoever uh, with it. Uh, okay, so I've mentioned, we really discussed uh, three issues today. Are you allowed to own a pet? The answer is yes. Uh, feeding the pet, the chametz and basur b'chalav, and feeding it before you eat. We, we discussed that. And then we discussed sterilization. Uh, the fourth issue is the laws of Shabbos, which is very, very fascinating. And that is, this is going to be a hard one for some of you, but I'll, but I'll give you some material. Are pets muktzah? Now, Shabbos has a whole category of items that you're not allowed to move on Shabbos. They're called muksa, right? You don't move money, you don't move a pen, you don't move a computer, you don't move a cell phone. Right? We call these muksa. When you first learn about Shabbos, muksa is very scary because you know, you're, you're doing something innocent in someone's house, and usually it's some kid who calls out, Muksa, you know, you, no matter what you what you do, you know, anything you touch, muksa, you know, and you know, it's like you don't know what's going on, but uh, things are muksa. Now the Gemara says in Masechet Shabbos, in the tractate of the laws of Shabbos, that animals are muksa on Shabbos. You're not allowed to move animals on Shabbos. Now, here's the question. This is the question: What type of animal? is the Gemara referring to? Some opinions say it's referring to farm or work animals, such as chickens that you keep for eggs, goats, sheep for their milk or their wool, cows. So those, those are muktzah. In other words, work animals are muktzah on Shabbos. That's actually true. You feed them, but you don't move them. But recreational animals that are kept for enjoyment and pleasure, dogs, cats, pets, are not muksa. They're, they're like, like a toy. I mean, toys are not muksa, and one could look at a pet like a toy. So there are some commentators that actually say pets are not muksa on Shabbos, so you have no problem. However, the bad news is a majority of posting do treat pets as muksa, and Ramosha Feinstein wrote a tshuva, now this is going to be very interesting, uh, in the 1960s, in which he poskined that pets are muktzah. Now, let's, let's go with the strict view for a moment. I'll, I'll give you the lenient view, but let's go with the strict view. Let's assume pets are muktzah. The worst case scenario. My dog is muktzah. My cat is muktzah. So what does that mean I can or cannot do? 
So here's an important rule about muktza. There is no isr to touch muktza. The isr is to move muktza. Let's take a pen. A pen is muktza. I can put my finger on the pen. I can put my, my I could lean against a car. I can't move it. I can't move a pen. So according to that, I could touch my pet. I just couldn't move my pet. So for example, if I put a leash on my pet in order to walk it, as long as I don't move the pet and the pet walks on its own, that would be okay. That's how you walk your dog on Shabbos. Now, the interesting machlokas is, how do you describe petting an animal? I have a dog, a cat, and I run my fingers through its fur in a back and forth motion. So something is being moved, obviously. I'm moving the fur, but I'm not really moving the animal. The animal stays in place. Or if it moves, it moves on its own. I'm not moving the animal. So some opinions say, even if pets are mukta, you are allowed to pet them because petting is not treated as a movement. Other, which I think that's a very useful leniency. So I can pet my dog. I could put, I could attach the leash onto the dog, and then the dog moves on its own. I'm not moving the dog. Uh, so I wouldn't be allowed to pull the dog. I mean, I could stop the dog. I could stop the dog, but I wouldn't be allowed to. Right? Sometimes the dog gets uh, stubborn. You know, you've got to pull it towards you. That would be muksa. You're not allowed to move the dog. But you could stop the dog, and you could pet the dog. Other poskim are stricter on this, and they say that even the side-by-side -side movement of fur is called moving of, of muktza. Now, this is the strict view, the strict view. But let me point out that although Rav Moshe Feinstein in the 1960s took a strict view, in a responsa that we discovered after his death, he seems to have changed his mind, and he actually said recreational pets are not muktza. Now, I have to tell you that in the world of halakha, these post-mortem discoveries are very, always very problematic because, uh, you know, after somebody dies, statements come out, people issue statements, you know, we don't have the total verification that this was actually Rabbi Feinstein's decision. So uh, rabbis are a little reluctant to, to, to use it as an absolute source of authority. Uh, but still, there are opinions that treat recreational pets as non-muktza, so you do have a basis to rely upon them. Yeah. Uh, two questions. One, one of my cats always jumps on the Shabbat table. Yes. And if we weren't to move him, that would be an issue. So then... Yeah. So the question is, uh, do you have to move him by physically moving him? What if you... Know, bang your hand. See, if, you, if I put my hand down and the, ch and the cat jumps off, that's perfectly fine. It's just I can't, I can't physically move the muksa. So you try to move the cat by uh, you know, a gesture, by your voice, that's perfectly allowed, but not by physically taking the cat and moving, moving the cat. Um, I actually have another question. Yeah. Another one about. So this, this cat, this is very specific, this cat only drinks out of sinks. Yes. And he needs to be lifted 
Oh. So if I don't lift him to drink out of the sink, he's going to scream. Okay. So, uh, 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 so actually, so actually, okay. So this is this is very excellent. This is that's, that's so let let me point out the following. This is very important. Number one, if you follow the view that cats are not pets are not muksa, you got no problem. But number two, this is really important. The halacha in the Gemara is the following. Even work animals that are clearly muktza can be moved to alleviate their distress. So I, I could take it a chicken. If a chicken needed to be lifted to reach water, or a goat, I would be allowed to do it. So it would seem that your case would be an exception to the laws of muktza because that's the only way the animal gets its water. Yeah, so I would think, I would think uh, there for sure you would be allowed to do it. In other words, that's an exception to muktzah. Muktzah is set aside to prevent the distress uh, to an animal. But apparently affection itself is not enough. In other words, the fact that the animal gets distressed if you don't carry it, that, that, that wouldn't be enough. But certainly if it's not going to drink, it, only, it doesn't drink from the bow, only from the sink? Only from the sink. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like we have one of those like running waterfalls yeah. so that you melt on these things. <laughs> but I was also going to ask about yeah. service animals. Yes. Where it's a recreational dog, but you're using it for a job. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I would still treat it as a pet because it is a companion, now, the final question I'll just allude to very... Oh, yeah, one, one other issue about, about a dog. Um, when there's no Arif and you're not allowed to carry, forget about muksa. you do have some issues about walking a dog on Shabbos. If there's an Arif, I can walk a dog very simply. I simply attach the leash to the dog, and the dog walks. I'm not moving the dog, per se. I'm just holding the leash, and the dog walks. That's perfectly fine, right? So when there's an Arif... Walking a dog is fine, whether the dog is muksa or the dog is not muksa, not a shayla. But when there's no arif, meaning you're not allowed to carry from the uh, outside, because there's no enclosure, so the problem is uh, sometimes holding the leash might be considered carrying, and, and it really kind of depends. If the leash is taut and it's not dragging, that's actually good, that's fine, because I'm not carrying the leash, I'm holding it up, and the dog is creating the tension. But if the leash is loose and dangling, then as I'm walking with a leash that's uh, dangling down, I am considered to be carrying the leash. So what that means is the following. At any point that the dog stops, and the leash is no longer taut, you have to stop. You can't keep on walking. You understand the picture here? You cannot keep on walking with a non-taut leash because as you're walking with a non-taut leash, that's treated like you're carrying the leash. Okay? So if the dog stops, you have to stop, and then you can, you know, do something to get the dog to go or whatever it would be. And then when the leash is stretched, you're allowed to keep on walking again. So you do have to be aware of this. And this is a problem only when there's no Arif. This is not a problem if there's an Arif. And the other thing you have to keep in mind is a rabbinic decree. And that is the rabbi said that the leash cannot hang 
on the back of your hands more than a hand's breadth, meaning if it looks like a loose thing that's hanging down, even if the leash is taut, it looks like you're carrying something in your hand. So you have to be sure that the leash is wound around your hand and you keep it as taut as, as you can, right? Again, these are shyless. When there's no Erev, Baruch Hashem, most communities have Erevs today, so that wouldn't be a problem, but it's something to uh, be, uh, be aware uh, of. Okay, uh, the final issue I'll just mention very, very quickly, and that is having uh, service animals. Oh, yeah. If your dog is walking off the leash, does that mean there's no problem with that? Uh, yeah, that, that's no problem at all. Uh, if he's off leash, uh, you're not uh, you're not carrying him in any way, so there's no problem. Uh, the issue of uh, seeing eye dogs or other types of uh, service dogs. By the way, I, I just saw I saw a video about a a service horse. This was very interesting. A horse visits uh, sick people in the hospital. I don't know if you saw that. It was very. Uh, they put little shoes on them. They what? They put little shoes on them so they don't step. Yeah, yeah. So he just comes in, and you know the. The horses apparently know, the horse decides who to visit. The horse has a sense of who needs the, the comfort and you know, they don't even tell him where to go. He just goes, very, very interesting. The, the, the intuition, I mean, they use, I think they use dogs to diagnose cancers even. Yeah. The dog has a sense of the illnesses. Quite amazing what Hashem put into the, uh, the animal, the animal world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, be it as it may, uh, there's a whole question about, you know, normally it's not considered respectful to bring an animal into a show. I, I just don't bring my dog into show. Uh, that's not covered and, and, and the like. Uh, the question is, what if, what if it's a seeing eye dog? What if it's someone that someone needs? So Rav Moshe Feinstein, again, had a chuba that permitted it. He said that if this is something that you need in order to daven, in order to function well, uh, that's considered to be perfectly permissible. Some people are machmer. It's a machlokis, but as they say, uh, I didn't. I never had the situation when I was a rabbi of a shul. Uh, but if I did, I, I would. I would uh, follow Rabbi Feinstein's psak on this, that we would treat it as uh, as mutter. Of course, you have to be careful. There's a general halacha, which I mean, a well-trained dog will not uh, <laughs> will not. It's housebroken. Will not defecate there. But, but there is a general halacha that you need to know generally that you're not allowed to daven within four amos of uncovered excrement. I mean, that's a general rule. So if, if uh, for some crazy reason that happens, then you'd have to be very, very careful. That's a problem with the baby diapers, a problem with a lot of things. Uh, but other than that, uh, Rabbi Feinstein said you're allowed to bring a service animal into a bait, uh, bait Knesset, okay? So we covered a lot today. I hope it helps you understand a little bit about the complexities of pet ownership. Uh, but overall, uh, it's true that in the Haredi world and in the Hasidish world, uh, pets have not been encouraged that much. And, you know, and they have different minhagim for this. You know that many, many European Jews are very scared of dogs. It's almost like an intuitive fear of dogs. And it actually goes back to, uh, to historical reasons. I mean, number one, the Nazis would use dogs to attack Jews. But even before the Nazis, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. The Polish pirates, the, the noblemen of Poland who oppressed Jews, would often use these big dogs uh, to bait the Jews and the like. So it almost became, it's not genetic, but it almost became a genetic fear of, of, of dogs, that dogs are associated with the Goyim and the Goyim uh, who want to hurt the Jews. But the truth of the matter is, uh, dogs or cats, for people who are cat people, 
can be very, very useful for a lot of kids. I mean, many, many times you have kids that are having difficulties in school or kids who feel they don't have a friend or kids that are going through emotional uh, difficulty. And uh, a dog is, uh, you know, can be a very, very good thing. And uh, so even within the religious world, uh, you often see that the kids who are going through difficult times, uh, the parents will get the child a, a pet, and uh, that can teach a person responsibility as well. Of course, I, I come from Maryland near Washington, so the saying in Washington always was, when people complained that they were betrayed by their friends, you know, they said, oh, my friend you know, turned against me, the line always was, if you really want a friend, get a dog. That's the only type of friend you'll get in Washington. In Washington, everybody turns against against everybody else. Okay, all right, you'll be well, Chodesh Tov, and uh, we'll see you next week. Oh, no, this is it, this is it right? This is it for last Okay. Anything I can help you with?